Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I have shoes full of ocean. Joining me is Liz, who has pants full of land. Some would say pockets? Yes, they would. I say pants. That works. (laughs) Our book this month is A Hat Full of Sky, which I was going to describe as what if Stephen King had written Mean Girls, but then I realized that's just Carrie. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty darn close. I was excited to see that it was another Tiffany Aching book since I thought the last one was lots of fun. And I'd be able to actually come into this one with no prior knowledge since I had somehow managed to read that one (laughs) much earlier in life. You know how I told you that the Carpe Joculum was the end of the Witches series? (laughs) Yeah, I I started to pick up on that. I I didn't technically lie. These are generally considered their own series, but they're also kind (laughs) of just the continuation of the Witches books. Yeah, it's like the spinoff that's just got a lot of overlap. Yeah, Uh, no sense in wasting time. Let's dive right into the trivia section. Originally published April 29th, 2004, and coming in at just under 80,000 words, A Hatful of Sky is the 32nd Discworld novel, and second in the Tiffany Aching series. The magic shop Tiffany visits while possessed has a sign that references a common gift shop warning. Lovely to look at, nice to hold, if you drop it, consider it sold. With the last line here changed to, you get torn apart by wild horses. The witch trials featured near the ending were introduced in an earlier short story and referenced the practice of accusing women of witchcraft in Europe and North America, and did also famously include dunking people in water, although that was less fun than the dunk take described here. And near the very end, as Tiffany decides to wait until she's older to wear black clothing, she paraphrases the opening line of Jenny Joseph's 1961 poem, Warning. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 7 hours and 45 minutes, with an abridged version read by Tony Robinson coming in at just under 4 hours. While the story has not yet been adapted for the screen, the book did win the 2005 Locus Award for Young Adult Novels, the 2005 Mythopoic Award, the 2009 Geffen Award, and was featured on the 2004 list of Horn Book Fanfare, and the 2005 list of the ALA Notable Children's Books. Our story begins in the rural region known as the Chalk, with its resident witch, the young Tiffany Aching. For the first time in her life, Tiffany is about to spend an extended period of time away from the Chalk, studying under a witch up in the mountains. So it's been about two years since the end of the last story. I didn't, like, I realized she was so young in the last book, but now seeing a slightly older version of her... It, like, really exaggerates the fact that she's only nine in the first one. She had that assumed invincibility you get when you have not yet experienced puberty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she definitely uh, seems very infallible. (laughs) Or maybe invincible is a better word. This whole thing about going to study somewhere else is weird for Tiffany because it's kind of hard for her to mentally understand being away from the chalk because it's so woven into her identity. The line that gets repeated is, she tells the hills what they are, and they tell her who she is. As somebody who lives in the place that they were born, like, I really get this, because I've always imagined even if I did for some reason move away, I'd have to come back here, because 
here and being so close to the Rocky Mountains, it just feels so integral to how I view myself and my life that I have a hard time imagining it without it. Yeah, no, I feel the same way about the Boston area. The longest I've spent, like... And then, like, at 14 by yourself, that would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, but she's 11 here, isn't she? Oh, oh yeah, 11. <laughs> Which, like, that's even crazier. I know 11-year-olds, you know? They don't... <laughs> <laughs> they, I think they would. most of them would have a very hard time being away from their parents for a couple hours. <laughs> much less just, like, months on end. Yeah. And Tiffany, like, prides herself on being self-reliant. But, like, it's a lot easier to be when you are where you've lived your whole life. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, she knows where she grew up, you know? She knows the hills. She knows everybody in town. That's not the case, like, so far away from home. Elsewhere, a sinister presence is lurking, searching for something. We don't know what it wants until Tiffany does some light astral projection, a trick she figured out as a way to examine herself and the invisible hat she's received from the unofficial head of all witches, Granny Weatherwax. When Tiffany steps out of herself, the presence begins to speed towards her. Oblivious to this unseen force, Tiffany returns to her body, and it stops its hunt. Uh, the introduction of this monster, which I can just spoil it now <laughs> to make it a little easier, it's the Hiver. Um, like, it seems so unnatural, and it's so unsettling in the way it's described. Yeah. And I don't, I wasn't able to find any reference to the Hiver as, like, a thing in folklore. Like, I didn't do too extensive research, so forgive me if I missed something obvious, but still. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really heard of something that's even, like, super conceptually similar to this. Um, which, you know, you dig through all folklores of all cultures in the world, and there's probably similarities to something, but nothing immediate that I'm aware of. After saying goodbye to her parents, Tiffany heads out escorted by the finder of witches, Miss Tick. Tiffany also gets a present from Roland, the son of the Baron who rules over the land, but she refuses to open the box in the presence of Miss Tick's burning curiosity. <laughs> I do like the common personality trait that all witches share, that they're very curious in spite of other people's privacy, and also their immense stubbornness to other people being, in, like, sticking their nose in their business. <laughs> so... Still on the chalk, we see the Knack McFeagal as their new Kelda, Jeannie, is teaching her husband, Rob Anybody, how to read and write. His education is interrupted when the Feagles detect that spooky presence, which they call, yes, the Hiver. Rob immediately deduces that the Hiver is hunting Tiffany and wants to go and help her, but out of jealousy, Jeannie forbids him from going. I get that this book isn't really about the Neck McFeagle, so we definitely don't spend as much time with them as we did in the last one. But, you know, with the addition of Jeannie to, to the clan, there was so much opportunity for understanding how that changed their lifestyles and everything beyond just the reading and writing. And I'm kind of bummed that we didn't get more of it. Yeah. And especially since there's what feels kind of archaic animosity between Jeannie and Tiffany for I'm not sure of any other reason other than you know they're two female characters in the same story so they have to dislike each other a little bit <laughs> it just feels like you know there's 
an attempt to even if they just like rubbed each other the wrong way upon first meeting to you know really work it out but they hardly interact at all yeah it it kind of makes the book feel a little bit unfocused at least in this mm-hmm. respect yeah yeah because it's like okay i get the neck mcfeagle as a whole wanting to help tiffany but then there's all this stuff with genie that just feels like one step too far removed mm-hmm and what did you think about the uh, whole like minor subplot of Rob learning how to read? I appreciate it as a character trait, I think, to, you know, see that he's willing to grow and try new things. And he's still very much who he is and doesn't really get it, but he tries. But I'm not sure it really does a whole lot for the plot as a whole. Yeah, that's fair. I think uh, I definitely appreciate how there's some nuance and sympathy put to Jeannie with her jealousy. Uh, For those who missed the last book, uh, Tiffany was briefly engaged to rob anybody as just a way for the clan to have Akelda during an interim period so that they could help her defeat the Queen of the Fairies. And that's pretty much stated as the source of Jeannie's jealousy. It's because she's now married to Rob and like is worried that he has feelings for this 11-year-old. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely some uh, questionableness in that relationship, which makes it feel like, I don't know if this jealousy is worthwhile, you know? Yeah, and I, I do appreciate the sympathy that the narration gives her in pointing out that she's just scared because this... Like, she's pretty much a stranger in a new place. The way that the Neck McFeagle clans work is that a Kelda, she has to come from a different clan and marry into a new one. And, like, that means that she's surrounded by strangers. And so, you know, it's rough for her. Yeah, like Tiffany, you know, she's leaving the home she's known her entire life to go to a place where she knows nobody. That's a very isolating thing, and I get that it's, like, hard and that we get to see that, you know, that's ultimately where she's coming from. And there's even a moment where, like, Rob is failing to see that, and I'm, like, annoyed with Rob because it's, like, how can you see that she's just alone and scared? And you can sympathize with Tiffany with that, but you're not seeing it for your now wife. Yeah. Not to keep this tangent on too long, but I kind of feel like the second Tiffany book should have been about her helping the clan get their new Kelda. Or like a short story or something. Yeah. Fill in the space between the end of the last book and the start of this one. Yeah, because, you know, it's not like Tiffany's importance to the clan has shrunk or their importance to her just because it's different now. Especially since there's a lot of opportunity for Tiffany and Jeannie to connect because, you know, they... You know, they share that similarity of being alone in a new place. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, Tiffany and Miss Tick begin to detect the Hiver following them. To try and figure out what it is, Miss Tick constructs a shamble, a sort of magical cat's cradle that most witches use to help focus their magic by constructing it on the spot using whatever they have to hand, and always including a living thing. Tiffany struggles to do one, but that doesn't matter too much because the Hiver's presence destroys the shamble. I conceptually really like the shamble because, you know, our modern ideas of witchcraft, I think, are very different from how uh, they existed prior to, like, 20th and 21st centuries. Um, But a lot of, like, what witchcraft was in the olden days was just 
the stuff people were doing anyways, but kind of magicked up a little bit, you know? It's not the Harry Potter versions of it with, like, these billowing robes and fancy magic tricks and all that stuff. It's just, it's very down-to-earth. Also, like, shambles were briefly mentioned in the previous book, apparently, but, like, mm-hmm. they weren't in pretty much any of the previous ones. It feels like it should have been more of a thing in previous stories, the way it's talked about here. Yeah, especially with uh the witches' books, like... Not like any of the witches do a whole ton of magic in those, but because shambles are so important in this book, it feels like they happen very frequently. So for them to have never happened before, that does feel a little strange. And not to bring too many previous books into this one, but like Magrat probably could have used one. Yeah. (laughs) If only to like have some place to put her nervous energy. (laughs) Yeah, something for her hands to do. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's also a reflection that, you know, this series has taken place over the course of, like, what, 20 plus years at this point? And so that world has developed and grown and changed in all that time. Mm-hmm. So, eventually, the two witches arrive in the small town of Two Shirts, where they soon meet Tiffany's new teacher, Miss Level, who is a woman with two bodies. She mentions that she used to think she was a pair of twins with special connection, and that she used to work in the circus, doing feats of amazing coordination. But now she's taken to witchcraft. I really love her as a character, just because I can see her so clearly in my mind's eye. (laughs) And she's, like, so endearing and kind, and, you know, she's really good for Tiffany, I think. Which, very early in the book, made me very nervous about her fate. (laughs) It's like, I know how these things go, and good people like that tend to, you know, not escape all harm. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, also... I think Oswald the Ondergeist is pretty fun. Uh-huh. Just for the sake of clarity, Ondergeist is apparently the opposite of a poltergeist. So instead of causing <laughs> mischief and such, Oswald just constantly tidies up. That's an idea I might have to steal for uh, one of my own projects someday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany, in a bedroom all to herself for basically the first time in her life, opens Roland's present to reveal a silver necklace Shaped like the horse hill figure, which is a a type of geoglyph, usually seen from afar rather than above. It's common in the UK and other places where there's just like huge amounts of chalk in the landscape where people just dig ditches through the ground so to expose the white chalk and make drawings that can be seen from the sky. Very cool. And this one in the valley near the chalk is a horse, which is actually based on the Uffington White Horse from Oxfordshire. Also, geoglyph is a really good word. Yeah, right? Inscribe the geoglyph. (laughs) Yeah, here's a a prompting to anybody listening to use geoglyph in, (laughs) I don't know, your day-to-day life or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The horse is another very important piece of, like, the chalk landscape that was just not mentioned in the previous one. (laughs) Probably just like how people who live in New York don't really think about the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, it's just a thing in the background, and it's not important until it is. (laughs) Tiffany is quickly thrust into the deep end of Miss Level's style of witchcraft, which mainly consists of doing things for the people of the surrounding area, with responsibilities including midwifery, doctoring, and elder care. One particular recipient of this care is the senile Mr. Weevil, who is adamant about checking the box full of money he has saved up for his own funeral. It's always kind of mentioned in the background of the other witches' books um, that this is essentially what they do. Uh, But I really appreciate getting to see it from 
Tiffany's perspective, who's now being introduced to this world. Because a lot of it is fairly similar to what she was doing back home, really. It's just the context and the way she approaches it is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And on a larger scale, because she was mostly yeah. doing farm work, basically chores. Yeah, and having to really, really expand on the skills and sensibilities that she developed growing up, things that already made her a witch, into a much, much larger community and stuff. As this gets briefly mentioned, but it's easy to miss, Tiffany did expect this to be part of witchcraft, but she just wanted the like, cool, glamorous stuff on top of it. Uh, she wasn't like uh, some other wannabe witches we've seen in the series, and like equally in this book, who just think it should all be dancing in magic circles at midnight or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think it says a lot about uh, Pratchett's view of the world, that what constitutes as magic for the bulk of the witches is just doing the little everyday things of caring for people. You know, because like the wizards do magic, but they don't do much other than feeding themselves and loafing around. Yeah. I think it's mentioned at one point or another that the point of like the wizard university is to have a basically just wizard storage, keeping them safely all in one place where they are eating big dinners and not hurting anybody. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, putting the boy in a nice place for later. <laughs> but the witches, like, they're out there and they're doing things and... The bulk of what they're doing is helping the people around them. Several days later, which I actually did not think was made super clear the way the narration is framed, but it is, like, some time afterwards, back with the Feagles, Rob Anybody is inconsolable with worry about Tiffany, so Jeannie lets him go help her fight the Hiver. He gathers a number of other Feagles, as well as a whole pile of gold from the burial mound that is their home, and together they puppet a scarecrow to pass as a man in order to take the coach into the mountains. I love how absolutely terrified everybody they meet is afraid of them in this scarecrow form. Because <laughs> they're just so like unnervingly bad at pretending to be a human. And it doesn't work because it's like passing a, a charisma check, not because you're really good at it, but by being really unsettlingly bad at it. We're looking at one on the charisma check, but the DM knows that you have to succeed for the plot to move forward. So there's like, <laughs> um, yeah, and like money makes a lot of problems go away. Yeah, it's like hand wave it away a little bit. It's like, yeah, you're, you're going now. Yeah. But yeah, you could definitely see this being in like an animated movie. Just like, I yes, hello, we are ordinary human. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're just like do doing an inflatable tube man dance. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tiffany meets another junior witch, the ever-stammling Petulia, who invites Tiffany to a gathering of young witches. It is Petulia, right? I think so. Yeah, Petulia. Because it's not Petunia. Mm -hmm. Not the first instance of a Discord character's name being slightly off from a name you might be familiar with. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. It's not this. I have to get that one out of my head. At the gathering, Tiffany meets Anagramma Hawken, a bossy and egotistical girl who believes that witchcraft should be glamorous and steeped in arcane rituals, and who's trying to form a coven with herself in charge. What you were saying about Jeannie earlier and her being at odds with Tiffany because just that's how two female characters in a story have to be. That kind of goes double with her and Anagramma. Yeah. <laughs> and this is also where I had the Mean Girls comparison because she's just like witchy Regina George. <laughs> yeah. Somebody needs to take some stills from Mean Girls and just put uh, quotes from this book over the top of it. 
<laughs> also, what did you think of Pachulia? I think she's a sweet character, you know? She gives me, like, big Magrat vibes. Mm. And I kind of wish she was a little bit more in this book, just because I think she would have been a good foil for a lot of Tiffany's character development. But I also kind of get why she's not in the book more, because then that starts to get to be a bit of a big cast to keep everybody involved in the book moving forward. Yeah. kind of feel like if uh, you had cut the Mac McFeagles, basically, and, like, mm-hmm. just focused on Tiffany, maybe have, like, one Fiegel with her. Yeah. It could have been a much more streamlined story. I can't say that it would be better. It would be different. Yeah. All these changes that we talk about theoretically making on this are all like in a vacuum, you know? We're not actually working with the story and having to deal with the consequences of making any changes. (laughs) But I think like because Tiffany kind of, I don't know if it's totally fair to say that she thinks she's above Petulia when they first meet, but kind of thinks she's a bit of a a wet blanket. Mm. Her having to realize that Pachulia is not only a good and kind and competent witch, but one that she should have treated better, even regardless of all that. Like, that would have been a lot for the changes that Tiffany goes through in this book. Yeah. Although I think that Tiffany does recognize that and gain some respect for Pachulia near the end. Yeah, totally fair. (laughs) Anagramma snootily asks Tiffany what witchcraft she can do. And clearly doesn't believe the story Tiffany tells about defeating the Fairy Queen back in The Wee Free Men. Then, Tiffany shows them her invisible and intangible hat, and none of them can tell it's there. Worse, they seem to pity her for believing in it. Oh my gosh, this scene gave me some, like, flashbacks to being in middle school. Oh god, no. God, it's just like, oh, it sucks, and I feel so bad for her, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Yes, I have also been there. It's, it's <laughs> not good. Yeah, just that deep-seated, like, embarrassment you get where you know you've goofed, and like, oh, you can't fix it in that moment, you just have to live with it. I'm gonna be getting flashbacks to this in the shower for the rest of my life. <laughs> Uh-huh. The other thing you think about 10 years later, and you're like, no, I forgot about it, and now it's back to torture me. Humiliated, Tiffany runs back to Miss Level's cottage. Humiliated, Tiffany runs back to Miss Level's cottage. There, she steps out of her body to confirm that the hat does still exist, and the hiver steps in, taking control of Tiffany's body and her magic. Um, as we see the hiver in action. You know what? I'll, I'll just do it. Uh, okay. As we see the hiver in action, it becomes clear that this isn't just a totally different being possessing Tiffany. The hiver is Tiffany, just without the strings. You know, like we all want to be. It steals Mr. Weevil's box of money, bullies Anagramma into becoming its subordinate, and buys a bunch of magic-esque accoutrements from a shop, which all, you know, very cool. When it refuses to pay full price, the shop owner tells the staff wizard to stop the hiver, and she turns the wizard into a frog, which he, like, totally deserved, but horrifically turns all the excess body mass into a huge balloon of viscera, which the narration mercifully, or maybe unfortunately, does not describe in detail, because this is a young adult novel. Like, boring. Yep, whatever you say, boss. Um, and so then the Hiver returns to Miss Lovell's cottage where it kills one of her bodies before the Nackmack Fiegel arrive and totally ruined Tiffany's fun. The Fiegels use their power of stepping between worlds to get into Tiffany's mind and see how close the Hiver is to taking over her completely. Tiffany's inner world is a phantasmal representation of the chalk and the sun that represents her soul is setting. With the aid of the shell-shocked surviving half of Miss Level, Tiffany and the Feagles figure out what they need to force the Hyper into that phantom chalk using the power of smell. After an interlude where the Feagles steal the stuff that smells like home for Tiffany, 
The plan succeeds, and the Hydra is brought into Tiffany's mind palace. There, the entire landscape rises up as one giant Tiffany and kicks the poor Hiver out of her body. Oh. Uh, s- sorry, I don't know what came over me there. Um, yeah. That was weird. I think you may have awoken something in some of our listeners. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one would reasonably expect that to be the end of the story. It's not. Next comes the aftermath. Yeah, as soon as Tiffany gets possessed, I kind of just assumed that was going to be the rest of the book. And, you know, the big finale would be expelling the Hiver from her body. And then what happens like two chapters later, I was like, okay, I don't really know what the rest of this book is about now. Because <laughs> doing it that way would just kind of be a retread of the previous book, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fair. But like having the threat be within Tiffany rather than external. Yeah. And, you know, this is a young adult novel. It's definitely intended for younger readers. And when I was in college, I took this class that focused on the media's impact on children. And so we talked a lot about children's TV shows and especially the ones that try to express morals for the kids to learn. And a issue that a lot of those shows have is that you know it shows this character does something wrong and does something wrong and does something wrong and then you know the climax of the story is them learning what they've done wrong and then doing better but because the kid has seen that behavior done wrong for 20 of the 30 minute show that's what sticks out to them not the learning part so you know the fact that the hiver is pushed out of tiffany and she's now having to resolve all of the damage that she did while it was possessing her, I think is a really, really great example of, you know, taking responsibility for your actions. And like, you could make an argument that they're not her actions, but at the same time, they really are. Like, Tiffany did consider doing all these things, at least for like a half second. Yeah, and I think we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but I think it can be really helpful to treat the Hiver as kind of a metaphor for mental illness, because I know when I've been in really bad depressive or anxious episodes, I'm not a person I like very much, especially compared to the healthy, happy version of me. And when I'm getting better and I'm having to go through and apologize to people and, you know, fix the things that I made worse when I wasn't well, like that sucks and that's hard. But it's also very necessary. And, you know, in a way, I kind of got to see that part of the process in this book. Yeah. That's a really good point. I was just thinking of it like intrusive thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, for anyone who doesn't know about these, you're not actually that unusual for having occasional just stuff that pops into your head, like push someone in into a river or whatever. It's like a very common thing. Pretty much everybody like has brief moments like that. You just got to remember to not do it, right? Yeah, and for the most part, it's pretty easy to tell yourselves not to do those things and Sometimes when you aren't able to catch yourself quick enough, you then you gotta go and pick up the pieces of whatever you did. And, you know, I, I think the Hiver is not a one-to-one metaphor for things in specific, but I think it's helpful to think about it in ways that like, you know, it is the impulsive, intrusive, and hurtful and selfish part of yourself, which, you know, mental illness may exacerbate for you or it might not. And, you know, what it takes to fix it after, you know, the damage is done. It's not an allegory, right? Like, we just, we talked about this the last episode, the difference between allegory and applicability. Yeah. 
And it's also a very useful illustration of what Miss Level describes as something that all young witches go through, of just getting frustrated with the role of just like general doctor slash handy person of mm -hmm. a rural area. Yeah, a lot of it's not glamorous or magical, but it's still very necessary and important. Probably Tiffany would not have done this sort of thing if the Hiver hadn't interfered, but also she would not have fully appreciated and understood what it means to be actively not doing harm if mm -hmm. it hadn't stepped in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, for the functions of the book, the Hiver possessing Tiffany and wreaking havoc on the people in her lives, it really shows that, you know, the part of her that doesn't get why she's doing what Miss Lovell's having her do, and the part of her that doesn't really get why she needs to treat other people in a certain way, has to really learn by seeing, like, what not being super mindful about those things can do. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also just, like, the ways that Tiffany is trying to make herself heard through the hiver, just, like, the tiny little, help me, this... Yeah. That... <laughs> Like, added an just, like, an extra dollop of horror. Yeah, the fact that she was still in there, but just no longer had any control. So, Tiffany's recovery is facilitated by a woman she doesn't recognize at first, but soon realizes is none other than Granny Weatherwax, who has been keeping an eye on Tiffany, and realized that she somehow borrowed nothing. <laughs> yeah, this is the return of borrowing from a bunch of witches' books. Yeah, you know, obviously this book sets up a lot of, like, personality similarities and differences between Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax, which I think are really fun and interesting to see since, you know, Granny Weatherwax is very clearly a very old witch and Tiffany is such a young witch by comparison. The, like, contrast between the two is fun. But uh, the fact that they both do borrowing, which is described in the other witches' books as being dangerous, but because Granny Weatherwax has been doing it for so long, we don't necessarily see a whole lot of, like, direct examples of that. Seeing, like, oh, yeah, borrowing can go real, real, real bad here is interesting. The danger we saw of borrowing in some of the earliest instances was just like losing yourself somewhere mm -hmm. else. But here it's something else stealing you. Yeah, yeah, like you can, yourself can be lost regardless of where it is and the fact that that can happen in different ways. Once Tiffany has reaffirmed her sense of self, it's time to deal with what the Hiver did. Granny accompanies Tiffany as she goes on Miss Level's usual route of responsibilities, taking care of the things that the now half-dead Miss Level is not yet recovered enough to handle, and inevitably leading to Mr. Weevil. There, Tiffany returns the box of money that Hiver she stole from him, but to her surprise and his delight, the Feagles have replaced his hoard of copper and silver with gold. You know, most fairy gold disappears, but fegal gold comes pre-disappeared from wherever it was when they stole it. <laughs> it's another magical way that the fegals are different. <laughs> I totally get why Tiffany doesn't see more consequences for stealing, just because I feel like that'd really be hammering the point home and, you know, she already feels guilty about it. So I don't think the point needs to be belabored over too much. So while I was a, a little unsure about how I felt this part resolving at first. In the end, I do think this is probably the best way to handle that. At least for the tone of the story, right? Yeah. Because, mm -hmm. like, it would have been too heavy to end this book with Mr. Weevil being absolutely destitute at, like, 97. Oh, yeah. The resolution here of this part of the story is not things magically getting better. It's Tiffany taking accountability for her actions. So her making the effort to apologize 
is the like climax it is the resolution regardless of whether or not mr weevil forgives her and whether or not that part works out and actually it does also come back to something that miss level talked about while she was showing tiffany the whole being a witch thing is like she was talking about getting stuff from people as thanks and payment for her hard work and storing it inside of other people Mm -hmm. and it all getting paid around yeah tiffany has stored a lot of goodwill and mutual respect in the feagles and they have paid it back yeah (laughs) but not for her for someone else yeah like those relationships that you build with your community like you carry each other when you need it. Two other important points I want to discuss about what happens with Mr. Weevil here. First, I want to talk about his reaction because it's not just a simple thank you. Like, in a different version of the story, I would imagine just like the scene ends with when he shows Tiffany that it's full of gold. In his previous scene, the man was adrift, like disconnected from reality, focused on his savings because this idea of, quote, not being a burden was the only thing he felt like he had. But when he gets this unexpected fortune, he almost instantly becomes more active and aware and willing to participate in his own life not simply because of the money but because of the sense of agency that it provides Mm -hmm. yeah you know he doesn't have to worry about this one last thing so he's able just to like live and exist in his life being poor not being able to ensure that you can do the things that you need to do like that's a like huge mental and emotional and physical burden on you yeah and amazing how when you give money to people they spend it yeah (laughs) shocking (laughs) the other thing i wanted to talk about is tiffany's emotional state directly before and after she's racked with guilt but doesn't run away partly because granny weatherwax is right there and will know if she does but also because Tiffany recognizes that a proper witch shouldn't run from her problems. And afterward, she still feels guilty, even though the harm has been undone, because she doesn't feel like she's gotten closure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to think about things in a black and white situation like that, you know, where somebody did something bad, so something bad should happen to them. But the mm. context is important, you know, and makes all of that much messier. Yeah. And, you know, I like I sympathize with Tiffany here. You know, there are things I've like done in life where I feel bad about it. And even if I like rectify the situation, that doesn't mean I stop feeling bad about it because that's a separate problem than fixing the result of whatever I did, you know? Yeah. Rectifying a situation can be part of finding closure for it and moving on from it. But they're ultimately separate processes. And like also... Sometimes you still feel guilty about stuff that, like, nobody else, like, even slightly cares about, right? Yeah. Like, uh, first grade, I once promised a kid a bunch of toys if he let me Mm -hmm. cut in line. I don't think I ever made good on that promise. (laughs) And, like, it occasionally haunts me to this day. (laughs) Yeah, like, like in hindsight, it's a relatively innocent thing to do. Like, that kid is not much first off because you didn't give your toys to them. But, you know, it's one of those things, like, you carry around and you remember it. And, you know, life's complicated. Yeah. (laughs) After dealing with Mr. Weevil, Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax discuss the hiver. It's still out there, stalking Tiffany, and she can feel an echo of herself within it. The two witches try to lure it out for a confrontation, but the hiver doesn't take the bait. After a night on stakeout, they are met by Petulia, who asks if they will be coming to the witch trials later that day. Tiffany is apprehensive, worrying about the damage the hiver could do in a crowd, but Granny seems unconcerned. Uh, You talked about how Tiffany should have gotten more respect for Petulia. Mm Mm-hmm. 
in this section, she does recognize that Petulia is like does have a strong core of bravery. Like she would have stood up to the Hiver, and even if she stood no chance. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a bit, and I think it's at about this part in the book where Tiffany says that Patchouli is a better friend than she probably deserves. It seems like her really learning that she wasn't entirely fair to Patchouli. Yeah. And I appreciate that. At the witch trials, Granny and Tiffany get separated in the crowd, and Tiffany has a moment of fear, which the Hiver takes as the signal to attack. But then, Tiffany constructs a shamble using the silver horse necklace and rob anybody, and ensnares <laughs> it. So this is probably why the Feagles are in this story, is just because <laughs> shambles have to include a living thing, and so Tiffany's shamble kind of has to include a Feagle. <laughs> yeah, just by an extension. And you know, because the Feagles to some extent represent the chalk as much as she does. Mm-hmm. And so she needs pieces of the chalk in order to make a shamble, you know, as a, the witch of the chalk. The part of Tiffany inside the hiver has given it enough capacity for reason that it and Tiffany can have a bit of a conversation. And she understands that it's basically disembodied fear, hyper aware of the universe as a whole. For thousands of years, it has looked for powerful individuals to use as hiding spots then used their abilities to attack at any potential threat, basically out of animal terror. What it ultimately wants is to be safe and not have to deal with life anymore, a wish that Tiffany grants by leading the Hiver through the metaphysical door to the afterlife. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm not sure how Pratchett did it, but he somehow made the scary monster super sympathetic. Yeah, it's a little bit Strange how Tiffany just sort of knows how to get the hyper there, but like... Yeah, that definitely feels like one of those things, like, it just happened because it's the most convenient way of doing it and the details are unimportant. (laughs) The hyper ventures out into that black desert that is a glimpse of the Discworld afterlife before death shows up and politely explains to Tiffany that there isn't really an exit back to the land of the living. A little awkward. Yeah. Oopsie. I kind of wish we'd gotten a little bit more of an interaction between Tiffany and Death. Yeah, because, you know, I w- if I was in her situation, I would have a lot of questions. <laughs> Especially as an 11-year-old. Just when Tiffany is ready to give up, Granny Weatherwax opens the door again and wedges her foot into it, letting Tiffany come back safe and sound. Yeah, I appreciate that despite the very clear, intense magic happening here to make this all work out, the solution is ultimately sometimes you just got to wedge your foot in somewhere. Very (laughs) unmagical. (laughs) It, It is very Granny Weatherwax. Like, she can do the great magic, but ultimately, like, her stubbornness and her will just shoving her boot into a place is a very, like, no nonsense way of dealing with it. That's all it really needs. And of course, you can tell this is a witch's book because Granny Weatherwax wins because the plot says so. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) So when Tiffany wakes up, she is in the first aid tent, surrounded by the other young witches. They're all concerned and impressed as Tiffany explains what happened, as well as the fact that Granny Weatherwax gave her hat to Tiffany. And the grandma tries to gaslight gatekeep girl boss Tiffany by saying that there's no way she went to the Black Desert until Tiffany pours some of the sand out of her boots. This gives Petulia and the other girls the confidence they need to finally stand up to Anagramma. <laughs> During the scene, Tiffany torments Anagramma by mentioning the balloon of guts and bloods that was the byproduct of turning someone into a frog and not just magicking away the extra bits. 
Yeah. <laughs> just like, haha, I like probably traumatized you for life. Jokes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would have uh, some scars from seeing that. <laughs> I've been traumatized. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> I do appreciate that there's some nuance with Anagramma. Because Tiffany recognizes that Anagramma will be a great witch because she has a good aptitude for telling stories. Yeah, she's very strong-willed, even if it's in a very different way than Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax are. Uh, Anagramma just needs to, like, get a taste of humble pie more than anything. Right? <laughs> yeah, some perspective, you know? Yeah, I think that's something that this book actually does really, really well, is showing that there's so many different ways to be a witch. And they all do ultimately kind of boil down to the same basic elements. But uh, Granny Weatherwax at one point says that she has never really been able to get the hang of shambles, which is obviously like a thing that's supposed to connect her and Tiffany. But it's also like everybody else is, can do shambles and is acting like that's just a very standard thing for a witch to do. And so seeing that, you know, the witch of witches can't do them, it adds a lot of variety. And there's not a single way to be a witch. Yeah. It means different things for every witch. There is also an argument that Granny is just too good of a witch to need a shambles. <laughs> and so just, yeah. she does say that they get in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because how a shamble works is it just gives you something to do and like both focus and unfocus to get in tune with magic. And Granny just has, it just is in tune with magic enough to be able to do stuff without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like we all work differently, you know, and some people need certain aids or things in order to do the same things that somebody can do without them. And they're all like valid ways of doing that thing ultimately, you know? Oh no, shambles are just magic fidget spinners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a modern adaptation of this would just have them all using fidget cubes. <laughs> so... After that comes the trials, which both Tiffany and Granny Weatherwax decline to participate in. Because Tiffany has already earned the respect of the witch, and like, she doesn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. Granny has also already just done some very impressive magic, and everyone knows that she is like the witch. Yeah, so there's nothing for either of them to prove. While that's happening, Rob Anybody returns home to Jeannie. Do they kind of have a sitcom husband, sitcom wife, like, relationship? <laughs> I kind of feel like maybe that's a bit of there to the ex to some extent. Like, I think it's made at least somewhat clear that Rob does care for Jeannie. And as much of a way as, you know, I think any of the male Neck McFeagle can care for anything. They care but... about stuff very passionately. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, stuff outside of, uh, like, drinking and fighting, <laughs> you know, but to some extent I do think that's sort of there where the husband is a little bit checked out and emotionally inept, but I still think there's genuine compassion, if not love there at least. I would almost say the reverse. Mm -hmm. I think there is love, if not necessarily compassion. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair way to look at it. And, I mean, I think it's also important to keep into perspective that how long can these people have really known each other and especially mm. with how the neck mcfeagle operate and how much stuff has happened the longest they could have known each other is about two years right mm -hmm. yeah and like two years is not really a super long time to know somebody sometime later tiffany visits granny weatherwax to return her hat and they have a conversation about what it means to be a witch Granny offers to teach Tiffany all there is to know about the cool sparkly magic if she throws her horse necklace down the well. 
But Tiffany refuses. Granny approves of this, saying that to be a great witch, Tiffany should also embrace being a person. That helps the cackling issue. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Tiffany returns to the chalk, walking openly as a witch, with her hat full of sky. Alright, so, what did you think? I think this is a really fun book. It definitely surprised me in a lot of ways that I ultimately really appreciate. I think it goes some very non-traditional uh, roots with the ultimate story. And I think it's especially a really great young adult novel, you know, because like I mentioned earlier, I think it does a good job of demonstrating resolving the situation that in a lot of things would just be the very end and you don't actually have to see the work that goes into fixing things. 10 out of 10 would recommend. It's not without criticism. I, I stand by what I said earlier about it feeling a little unfocused in places mm -hmm. and the Fiegels being as big a part as they are in this one. It feels like 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 an obligation more than an inherent and like uh, exciting part of the narrative. Yeah, like, oh, this is a Tiffany Aching book, so then Ackmack Fiegel have to be here, not what in the plot necessitates the Fiegel to be there. I mean, like knowing what the Hiver is and being able to like help her fight it, right? Yeah. If there had been just like one Fiegel hanging out with Tiffany, that probably could have still all worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, as fun as the scene is of them being this nightmare human, um, trying to get to where Tiffany's at, it's ultimately just like comedic filler. <laughs> with Miss Level, Granny helps her out because Miss Level has lost half of her bodies basically mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, but granny helps her retain use of that body it's just now a now it's a set of truly phantom limbs <laughs> yeah which feels like a a middle ground of the devastation of losing your body it's like ooh, now you can juggle with not being there and stuff you could be tempted to say it's a cop-out but like Large part of it is just, like, the tone of this story. Yeah, you know, it would be a bit weird to throw, like, oh, no, there's this big heartbreaking death into this otherwise lighthearted young adult novel. It's like in another book with a different tone, that would make a lot of sense. But this one ain't it. Oh, also, the ultimate resolution of the Hiver is another instance of Terry Pratchett openly being a proponent of assisted suicide. <laughs> yeah, like we cannot get much more explicit in this book. Around now is when, before this book came out, is when Terry Pratchett got the diagnosis that he had Alzheimer's. And mm -hmm. So he was very aware of his own mortality. Yeah, and I do think that's a thing that's becoming more and more of a common thing in these books is, you know, it's obviously death has existed in all of the books, mm -hmm. but really having to address feelings around death, and I feel like that's coming up more and more in these books as we approach the end. And also speaking of of that part of the story. Again, forgive me for bringing previous books into this, but it does kind of feel a bit like a retread of some of the stuff from the big monologue at the end of Hogfather, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially like the Hiver marveling at the human invention of boredom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty clear that he was working through a lot of feelings of wonder for life and for humanity's capacity for compassion and entertainment and storytelling and boredom explicitly in this book. And, you know, how do you deal with that coming to an end? 
Mm-hmm. And if, you know, I can totally get where he'd be coming from, like knowing what he knows at this point, just having so many feelings that you need to work through. And especially if they're ideas he's worked through in previous books, feeling like I'm not done with that. I need I need to sift through this again. There's something else here for me to learn. Yeah. And I think to your point there, the Hiver does mm-hmm. like talk a little bit more about why that's an incredible thing is because like it is intensely aware of the entire universe. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like a thing that it just it doesn't have the context to understand. But also like most humans don't choose to be bored a lot of the time, right? Yeah. When we get bored, it's largely because we're in a situation that we have to be in and is not stimulating. Like... Mm-hmm. Working at a dull job or in line at the DMV or whatever. It's like not something that we actively pursue. Yeah. Yeah. But it's as much a part of us as actively engaging with stuff. Uh, so, so for each story, I like to try to come up with a thesis. For this one, I would say that it's primarily that fear is ultimately self-destructive. And that manifests in a large number of ways. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, the hiver is basically just a fear elemental more than anything yeah but also like the reason tiffany is vulnerable to it is because she has figured out this thing that makes her weak to the hiver and tries to keep secrets wherever she can and that means that some people can't help her the way that would be useful yeah being afraid can make you resistant to tackling a situation which means that if it's something you can't entirely handle on your own it makes it harder to ask for help because Asking for help is just an extension of that fear. Yeah. And this is a important character flaw for Tiffany. That was also present in the previous book. But also Jeannie being afraid meant that Rob anybody didn't get there in time to help properly. Because she wanted to exert control over her household. Yeah, it's really hard to be brave when you want to be afraid. But being brave is ultimately the right thing. You know, it's being afraid can just make you suffer, can just make you hurt. Yeah. And it's not that that fear isn't valuable. It's just not letting it control you in a very literal sense with the hiver. <laughs> All right. So we're almost at the end. So I just want to say thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music. To you, Liz, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) And to everybody for listening. If you like the show, please consider following us on various social medias. I do still plan to eventually do that mailbag episode, but I seem to have lost access to the email address that I mentioned in the last one. So I'll set something up, probably like a Google poll or something. I'll probably post a link in the show notes for this one, where it will also have links to our Facebook page, Tumblr, a YouTube channel, and our Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to show notes, episode previews, and you're entered to be one of the randomly selected patrons who get a shout out at this part of the episode so this month we give our thanks to robin yeah thanks robin and of course we like to close out each episode with a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote mystic was a witch and a teacher and that's a terrible combination they want things to be right they like things to be correct if you want to upset a witch you don't have to mess around with charms and spells you just have to put her in a room with a picture that's hung slightly crooked and watch her squirm join us again next month for going postal until then the the turtle turtle moves. moves Also, since I watched Dune the other day, fear is a mind killer.